So here's a question for you. Are you living a life where what you do every day, whether little things or big things, make you feel like you're making a difference? Think about that for a moment. In today's podcast, I'm having a conversation with Chris Bowen, founder of Thrive Integration, a nonprofit aimed to curb the pattern of criminality from prisoners released from prison. I'm proud to be one of the board members of this organization based in Perth. Chris had a successful career as a detective in Western Australia before he made a life-changing choice. He shares candidly how he started as a police officer with good intentions. I guess you and I can relate to this. We all start out with good intentions, but it's easy to become distracted, maybe jaded, or even bored in our day-to-day life. This doesn't need to be an overnight thing, but it just can happen over time. Chris shares interesting insights into his time as a detective, such as revealing that with 95% of all his arrests, the arrested individual had issues with their father. He also talks about recidivism, which is something I'm passionate about seeing change. Recidivism is defined as the tendency of a convicted criminal to reoffend. In Australia, the recidivism rate five years ago was 44% and that has only gone up since then. And it varies from state to state, with Queensland and WA being the worst states for reoffending. Clearly, the judicial system is not working, or at least it's deeply ineffective. Look, I know. I saw this personally. In fact, I wrote a documentary pitch on the issue of recidivism in Australia. Screen West shortlisted my documentary a year ago, so maybe you will see it come to a screen soon, but regardless, it's a staggering thing to consider that out of every two people released, one will go back to prison within two years. It doesn't seem too effective if you ask me. I think from this conversation, you're going to hear some interesting thoughts from a man who has a lot of experience in law enforcement. But I think you're going to hear an incredible story of having the courage, after he had already established himself in a successful career, to then make a change, solely because he wanted to fulfill a lifelong passion to make a difference. Now, the sphere that Chris wants to make a difference may not be your sphere, and that's okay. But do you have the courage to live a life of passion? I think you, I think we all do. Maybe we just need a reminder. Could I give you three things to consider? Firstly, you're never too old. Don't let your age disqualify you. My dad, who's almost 70, asked me the other day about Snapchat. Probably not the right platform for him, but you're never too old to learn, to grow, to live a life of meaning. Secondly, don't waste time. Life is short and tomorrow isn't guaranteed. Accept that there are risks to any change in life, but don't wait too long for everything to be perfect before you do something you're really passionate about. And finally, if you're planning on going somewhere you've never been, it's going to be so much easier with others than on your own. Find people that are passionate too and perhaps reach out and link up. I know that Chris did this and now with a team of around 20, he is making a huge difference in the life of inmates released from prisons in WA. Anyway, let's jump into this conversation at the kitchen table. I know you're going to get something good from it. 
I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. It helps me a lot getting the word out about this podcast. If you could hit that button on your screen that says subscribe. If you could give me a rating, hopefully five stars and a review, that means a lot too. For other resources, check out my website, jeremiahjacob.com. Thank you and enjoy this conversation. All right, Chris, so great to be able to chat with you today. Really excited to have you on the podcast. And the reason why I invited you on this podcast is because I think that you've got a really interesting story. You've been a police officer for a uh, period of time, and then you're now doing something totally different. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, yeah, no, I was in, I was in the police force. I did um, 15 years in the police force. Half, uh, half uniform, half detective. Um, so was that federal or state or what kind of... Uh, uh, state police. That's state the WA police. WA yeah. police, yeah. And did you specialise in any particular type of policing during that time? Um, so as a detective, I worked at a couple of drug squads, um, child abuse squad, just uh, Midland, Midland detectives, Kensington detectives, those sort of areas. So I, did, I did 15 years. So I joined in 2000 and resigned in September 2015. Yeah, sure. What, what took you into the force in the first place? Uh, joining the police force is something I always wanted to do. I think um, everybody, every copper joins the police force wanting to make a difference, wanting to make the world a better place. Um, and I think on yeah, day one, day one on uh, an induction day, um, they sort of go around the police, around the whole room and ask everybody why they joined. Everybody joins because... They want to make the world a better place. They want to make a difference. And they most, I mean, every copper goes in there with the best of intention. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm, I'm saying and most coppers are still there trying to do exactly the same. They're still trying to make a difference, still trying to make the world a better place. Um, I think somewhere along the line, you get a bit frustrated with the system that you work under. Uh, not, not the police force itself, but just our justice system and... Uh, uh, you know, you can see people go in and out of jail and out of jail and the whole justice system's a little bit, just a little bit broken and it, it, it just gets a little frustrating. I think most coppers are a little bit frustrated with the system. Um, I still I still believe most coppers are doing a fantastic job out there. The, majority, the vast majority are doing a great job. But, uh, yeah. What, what was probably your first eye-opening thing when you had become a police officer and then... Um, I didn't see a lot... Yeah, okay. I've seen dead bodies. I've seen uh, people murder. I've seen people run over by trains and broken into pieces and all that sort of stuff. But um, uh, all that just goes with the territory. That's, um, you know, you get into, get into scuffles and all that sort of stuff. That's all fun. It's all, all good fun. That's why I joined. Yeah. That's why right. I joined. But it was the, I, I guess, the most, and, and, and I didn't see any corruption. I didn't see uh, police officers doing bad stuff. I didn't see any of that. While, while I was in here, I really, really didn't. Um, uh, in fact, it's gone completely the other way now where there's um, Triple C to investigate everything. They've got their own um, um, internal investigation unit. So I, I really didn't see any corruption. I didn't see anything bad in, in that sense. I didn't see coppers doing the wrong thing. Um, for all intents and purposes, they're all good guys trying to do the best job that they could. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So then you're going along and I guess year after year um, of being in that job, which which wouldn't be the easiest in terms of even coping with what you're coming up against on a daily basis. I mean, it's it would be a lot more hectic that I could imagine than, say, the background I've come from, which would be a, 
accounting or business broking or I mean you're sitting behind a desk and you're safe in an office environment I mean uh, how did you find yourself coping just even mentally with what was going on and processing some of the things that are happening around you? Yeah, I think um, as, a, as a police officer, you don't go to any good news jobs. You don't, you know, it's always a bad news job that you go in there. You don't get yeah, caught well. out of uh, someone's just graduated from high school and or they've had a baby or something. You're always going out to a domestic or you're always going out to a burglary, you're going out to some bad incident. So I guess it is easy to be calm. It's easy to let that bad get on top of you. And it's easy to, uh, very easy to become very cynical and sort of very hard. It's very easy to start sort of, you know, hating the world a little bit because you're always going, every job you're going to is bad. So you really do need coping mechanisms. You need um, ways to um, uh, offload all the bad, I guess. You, uh, and, and you have to have uh, ways to do that. I mean, let's just dive straight in, I guess. So what what were some of the ways that you helped? I mean, you were able to cope and able to deal with some of the things that you're seeing. Um, I had a good circle of uh, friends outside the police force. So I I made sure that my whole world didn't become the police force. Um, I I was able to download to my wife. My wife's very uh, caring, very supportive. Uh, All my friends, I've got a good circle of friends that were all very you know, supportive and just we didn't talk. I, I guess a lot of police officers, their whole life becomes a police force and all their friends are coppers, they marry a copper and their whole world becomes police, policing, policing. And, it, and and I think that can become very unhealthy. So I made sure that I had friends outside the police force. Family was very supportive. Um, going to the gym, keeping fit, going to the beach, um Going to church every Sunday, I felt like every Sunday when I went to church and I just lifted my hands to God, I felt like all the bad, all the bad come out and all the good come in, and I was able to uh, keep moving, keep functioning, and um, yeah, I, I spent 15 years and nothing kind of stuck on me basically. Really, I didn't come out with any um, bad memories or bad feelings or PTSD in any way. Yeah, I felt like everything just left, and I, I yeah, nothing stuck. Well, which I can't imagine is the story of everyone. No, a lot of people have different coping mechanisms. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah, everybody's got to come up with their own way of down, uh, offloading, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I found for myself, I mean, going through years of trauma, the circle of friends that you have around you makes a really significant difference. It's um, massive. Yeah, it's it's pretty much the the make or break whether you come out of something fractured or whether you come out of something um, with a sense of wholeness or not. Um, yeah. I think just the act of even for us as men to be able to talk with another guy. Yeah, massive. Yeah, and I don't think most men have those real conversations about yeah. the real things that are going on in their life. You know, about marriage and about family and uh, depression, or you know what they're struggling with. I don't think most men have real conversations these days. Yeah, it's more a bit more bubble over a beer and um, talking about the footy or the uh, you know. <laughs> and and why do you think that is? Why do you think men don't have those conversations? I don't, I don't think they really know how. Yeah. That's really good. I, I, yeah. I, I'd say you're, you're definitely right there. I mean, um, I, I don't think a lot of those honest conversations do happen. I, I think there's a tendency to have those kind of relaxed conversations, which are not too meaningful, I guess, you know. Uh, Maybe we don't like to uh, make ourselves vulnerable, uh, telling other people what we're actually going through ourselves. So I think yeah. if you do become vulnerable to other men, it sort of opens you up and it opens them up as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And I guess um, that's probably a good point just to carry on with your journey of, so you've been in the force now for 
15 years and then, you know, at that level of seniority, I suppose most people would probably continue, but you've chosen to then just take a complete 90 degree turn (laughs) and uh, go in a different direction, I suppose. And so um, maybe just kind of run us through how that story came about. I always said to my wife when I first joined, I said, if I ever become cynical uh, and if I ever come home whinging and complaining, then it's time to leave. So I had 15 years where I didn't, I just enjoyed the job, loved the job, but just I found in the last six months I was, I was coming home and I was whinging a little bit, I was complaining a little bit about the, you know, the recidivism rate and how uh, people going into prison, coming out, going in, coming out, and it just prison didn't seem to be working. And I think I um, got to the stage where I just had no satisfaction anymore of uh, locking someone up, sending them to jail. I just thought, man, it's, it's just not working. It's just yeah. not working. My yeah. last... Uh, case that I went to court for, I've got 16 and a half years and, you know, what, what I should have come home rejoicing, but um, it just, uh, it, it didn't, it did gave me no satisfaction anymore. So I think um, uh, fulfillment in life is way more, I mean, you know, I was on a good way, had a good job, got to wear a shirt and tie, got to carry a gun and a taser and all the gear and had a shiny badge that said I was a detective, senior constable and, um, you know, had people respected you when you walked around like that yeah but it just wasn't giving me fulfillment anymore so i actually got home to my wife one day and i said i'm actually sick of locking people up i actually want to unlock people wow i actually want to help people you know come out the other side and and not go back into prison i want to help men to have those conversations about how to be a better husband and a better wife and a better worker and uh, just become better men and, and and get off that cycle of crime, you know, domestic violence, drugs, there's just a better life. I mean, that's a a really big thought. I I remember when I first heard this, I find it as impacting as it's impacting me now. So you've been doing something for such a solid amount of time. And I guess, like you said, everyone starts off with those good intentions and they start from that good place. And I guess they generally continue with that good place unless there's some serious issue inside their own life but yeah so they continue on but then the results just weren't there and you make this profound statement of i'm tired of seeing people locked up and you want to see them set free that's uh it's, mm. it's very profound how, how did you even come to that conclusion i guess i guess we all want purpose we want to be making a difference we all want to uh be impacting people in a positive way. And I just felt that sending people to prison wasn't impacting people in a positive way anymore. So I wanted to start, um, actually really wanted to start mentoring men. And uh, you know, I've been married 29 years now and learned a few couple of things along the way. And um, yeah. I think I've, I've had some pretty good teaching in my life and read lots of books. And so I felt like I've got all this, you know, knowledge or, you know, wisdom inside of me that I just needed to, in part to other men and, yeah. and locking them up and sending them to prison just wasn't um, at all fulfilling for me. Uh, I'll let you carry on with your story in a second here, but it just reminds me of this conversation I did have with somebody in prison. And um, while I was there on remand, um, I remember somebody had come in, gone out and come back in, in the short period of time that I was there and I said to him, didn't you like just being free and being, you know, being out? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, this guy was a, um, a meth cook, right? He, he actually said this phrase and I thought it was unbelievable, but he said it was just a occupational hazard of his job 
to come to prison. <laughs> and I couldn't believe that I, I just heard that phrase as an occupational hazard. And um, yeah. so he yeah. didn't find that prison was going to be, it, it, you know, maybe for some people it's going to be the thing that changes their life. Um, yeah. But it certainly wasn't for him. Well, well, I think a prison needs to do one of two things. It needs to either rehabilitate yeah. or it needs to be a deterrent in such a way that you don't want to go back in there. And I, I think at the moment, I think prison tries to fit into both camps but uh, fits into neither. So I don't think it's fully rehabilitating people, but I don't think it's deterring them either. So it's just kind of this uh, middle of the road sort of, you know, don't know what to do with them. Let's just lock them up um, and, and incarcerate them at $120,000 a year. Wow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you've uh, you've come home, you've told your wife this incredible thing. So what happens after that? Well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, so I, I've got faith. So I, I was walking on the beach, 1st of January 2015. I go for a walk along the beach and I actually prayed. And I, and I said to God, I said, I'd love to... Um, I said, I'm sick of locking people up. I want to unlock people. I would love to um, find an occupation where I'm actually mentoring men and, and, and helping them, you know, not get locked up and not go back into prison. So sort of prayed that and then went back went back to work. And a couple of months later, I actually met um, construction, one of the construction bosses in, in, in Perth, Jerry Hanson. They, you know, Hanson Construction built all the Binbar buildings. Had a conversation with him. And, and must have said something like, um, you know, I was, I was a bit dissatisfied about helping men come out of prison and thought nothing of it, went back to work. And then about a month later, I uh, went for a coffee with a friend of mine and Jerry came along. So while we're having coffee, Jerry says to me, he says, why don't you come and work for me? And I said, uh, what as? He goes, oh, come on as a mentor, <laughs> which is the exact thing I, I prayed for. And I sort of, sort of started getting goosebumps and all the rest of it. But then I said to him, listen, I've got some long service leave coming up. How about I, um, it's all booked. Uh, so I said, how about, how about I have a conversation when I get back? He goes, yeah, that's fine. So I went home and I discussed it with my wife, but leaving the security of the police force is a big step step out of, you know, I had everything going for me there. But I said to my wife, I said, listen, we'll go on holiday. We'll, we'll have a think about it while we're away and I'll make a decision when I get back. So my wife and I, we went to Europe for, we did five weeks in Europe. Mm -hmm. And then we flew from, when we finished our Europe trip, we flew from Rome to Singapore and we jumped on this cruise ship. We cruised back from Singapore back to Perth for two weeks. So we're on this cruise ship. I still hadn't made up my mind, hadn't really um, got any direction. So I get up the first morning on the boat and it's a beautiful day. And I go for a walk around the perimeter of the boat, looking out over the ocean. And I actually prayed and I said, God, what do I do? Do I go back to the police force or do I take this new opportunity? And I said, God, give me a sign. Give me a sign. Give my wife a sign. She was really unsure. So we're in the we're on this cruise ship. We're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that night. My wife and I, we walked down, walked down the stairs on the cruise ship. We walked down to um, have dinner. So as we're walking down the stairs, get to the landing, and I bumped into none other than Jerry Hanson. <laughs> That's incredible. He's on this cruise ship, just happens to be on the same cruise ship as I am, in the middle, you know, middle of nowhere. And so I have this conversation with Jerry, and, that, and anyway, that was our sign. So pretty much the day I got back to um, Perth, I um, put my resignation in for the police force, and, and I started started working with Jerry. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And that was... Uh, that was that was near coming up for five years, or about four and a half years ago now. Then you started working with him, and what happened? What what was that journey like? Uh, it really was about um, coming on and changing the culture of his building company. I think um, 
once I started, I, I soon realised that there was a, uh, a drug issue <laughs> on site. Yeah. So I, I, I ended up, I started um, drug testing for Jerry and it turned out that one in three were testing positive for an illegal drug on site. Wow. So we, I spent the first year really, really changing the culture there and um, turning it into a culture where, you know, a, a culture where I would want to send my 15-year-old son into if he was to get an apprenticeship. Because before that, it was it was just the, the, the culture was toxic. Um, you know, uh, when, when I was drug testing the apprentices, it was seven out of 10, 10 were pop, uh, testing positive for an illegal drug. So that was the culture the kids were coming into. So I just spent the first year changing the culture, really uh, making a drug-free culture and uh, just, just really changing the culture, not, not sacking people for using drugs, but just changing the culture where it was a healthy, non-toxic sort of culture. And from there, we started... Um, uh, just bringing guys out of prison on, onto site and giving them jobs and giving them jobs, yeah, getting guys out of prison, giving them jobs. And uh, I just found that the building site was a a, a great place for men uh, to find purpose and just be around other men, positive men, hardworking men. So yeah, it just turned into basically changed our building sites from building sites into um, rehabilitation sites, really. Which, wow. which gave everybody at work just a greater sense of purpose. So instead of, we, we, we're no longer just building buildings, we're actually building people and, and, and rehabilitating people. And, 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 and guys at work started really buying into it and, and started getting a lot more joy and satisfaction and fulfilment out of, out of that. So That's building people incredible. at the same time as building buildings and, and incorporating the two of them. That's incredible. And did you find it uh, challenging to get the guys to maybe trust you initially, or to how, how did that how did that sort of flesh out? Uh, they probably found it harder to get the guys on the building site on on board with it at first. They sort of you know, well, why should we give prisoners a second chance? And um, um, there was a bit of resistance to it at first. But some mm. of the guys that came on and started working were just mate, they've, they've, they've been some of our best workers. They really have been some of our best workers. One of Jerry's favourite sayings is once you once you work out where you don't want to be, the rest is easy. Yeah. Some of these guys that have been in prison, they've been in prison, they hate it in prison, they don't want to go back to prison and, and they're bloody good workers. That's all I can say, you know? Yeah, wow. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And so then in the last yeah. year, what I know is that you have um, now started a non-profit called Thrive and uh, tell us what that's about. Okay, so I guess for the first... Um, First four years, I was just trying to do everything on my own. Just, I didn't really have a plan. I just seen where it was all going. And um, I think what I've got now with Thrive, uh, it's called Thrive Integration, and we run an event called Thrive Night every second Wednesday night. And what I've got now is I've got about 20 um, guys and girls that are really got the same heart as I've got to see guys uh, come out of prison and, and make it and do well. Um, and so it's all about role modelling. It's all about building community around people i think um you know there's a there's a proverb that says um, hang around the wise and you'll become wise mm. so i think when guys come out of prison what normally happens is they come out with great intentions to do well and, and not go back to their old life but then you know one or two days out their old mates come around uh, knock on the door and, and next thing they're out back breaking into houses stealing cars and, and, and jabbing needles into their arms so if we can bring them out in to a different environment and a different community, a positive environment, a positive community, um, I think it's going to make a massive difference. Yeah, sure. I mean, we're having this conversation here in Perth and Western Australia has a very high rate of recidivism with people who are released from prison and within a two-year span, 
there is a very high percentage. I, I believe it's over 50%, which will re-offend and go back to prison. Yeah, I think the figure is around 44%, but yeah. uh, I, think, I, I think it may be even than that. And, I've, and from what I understand as well as from the Aboriginal community, that percentage is even considerably higher than that as well. And so uh, for this issue of recidivism, and I suppose this is your whole life mission. I mean, when you're sharing your story, basically you've started off wanting to make a difference. You've carried on that for a very successful career. And then now you've um, switched gears and um, essentially, you still want to make a difference, but you, it's a different approach now. And in that whole process, you're seeing a system that's not working with a particular part of society. I know there's no short answers, there's no quick answers, but what is maybe the biggest thing in your heart that you feel could be a solution to seeing change happen for, for this broken part of society that um, finds themselves in breaking law, criminality, a life of criminality, and um, and sometimes that seems to con continue on in families as well. What would you say is an, is, is something there? I think um, it's about breaking the cycle, and I think the best way to do that is to show people a different way and have have uh, examples of guys that have come out of prison and have broken the cycle and are doing well. Um, you know, I've got a few guys now that we can sort of hold up as um, shining examples of, of guys that have come out and done well and haven't gone back in, you know. I think of one particular young fellow that's, uh, when I worked at Midland Detectives, he was he was one of the worst offenders in the area. Uh, <laughs> uh, always in and out of prison, in and out since 15. And he's been working with me now for over three years. Uh, never gone back in and just bought his first house. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, you know, basically if this guy can do it, others can do it. Yeah. yeah and we've got several examples of people like that and they just need they need men around them that, that are going to believe in them that are going to speak uh, life into them and, and positive words into them i think i think a massive 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 issue today is um, fatherlessness i think my you know if you if you tap into to people in prison i think i think 95 percent of people that i ever arrested i i, I could trace it back to that you know, and break down in the relationship with their father really wow absolutely absolutely that's incredible. The, the, the fatherless issue is something that's really kind of unspoken or unwritten about, but it, it's massive, massive. Yeah. I remember um, before I became a detective, I was working at the police rail unit for uh, a couple of years. And whilst I was working there, we put this um, operation together to target, you know, when the kids do graffiti on the train windows and they scratch their, scratch their names onto the windows and it was just costing millions of dollars. And so they said, can you put this operation together? to target graffiti. So me and this one other fella got together and we put this operation together. And when we first started, he said to me, he said to me, why do, why do kids do graffiti? You know, I, he couldn't see the sense behind it. You don't get anything out of it. He said, why do kids do graffiti? And I said to him, because they're angry with their dads. <laughs> and he looked at me like that was the dumbest thing that he'd ever heard. And he just laughed and said, yes, that's, that's crazy. Anyway, we started uh, arresting one after another after another. And every time we put a fella in the back of the car, I'd just casually say, how's things with your dad? And immediately it would be, F my dad, my dad's this, my dad's that, every single time, bar none. And towards the end of it, my, my mate was going around the police station telling everyone, kids do graffiti because they're angry with the dads. Now, that's just graffiti. That's just graffiti. That's bottom of the level stuff, entry-level crime. But you yeah. take that into drugs, take that into burglary, take that into every every facet. And somewhere along the line, the majority of cases, you'd find that there's a breakdown 
with the father. Yeah, wow, 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 that's incredible. And uh, obviously, a, a, a much deeper problem than sometimes what we just see on the surface. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Another another classic illustration is um, years ago, Hallmark Cards did this um, event in the in the men's prison where they Mother's Day they set up a, a table for all the prisoners to come down and write a card for Mother's Day and uh, massive success. Everybody came down writing cards, uh, mailing them out to mums. It was such a huge success that they said let's do the same again on Father's Day. However, Father's Day came, set up all the cards, not a single prisoner came down to write a card. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> That's very eye-opening. So very, very... Yeah, it does. It, it absolutely paints a picture. So with our, our Thrive Night, Thrive Integration, what I'm trying to do is get good father figure role models, guys that have uh, been married 29 to 30, 40 years, you know, and, and have raised kids and just good men that are, that are going to fill that role of, of father figure, the guys that have had a father. That's powerful. It's really powerful. I think, um, you know, as we've been talking and hearing your stories and hearing what your passion is, obviously not everyone listening to us is going to have the same background or necessarily even the same drive to, um, you know, to see change in this particular part of society. There's other other passions and other things that people would be, um, you know, really passionate about. But the takeaway I feel like from this conversation is um, from your life, Chris, is just the fact that you were courageous enough to keep digging to try to want to make a difference. And that involved taking the risk of even leaving a very stable career to want to do that. Uh, I, I don't think necessarily everybody has that type of cor- uh, courage to be able to take that risk, but, but you did. And I think that's, uh, it's pretty cool. I, I, I just think having passion You've got to be passionate. Passion drives us. It's it's way more important than possession. It's way more important than money or having a purpose and a passion is so important. And um, I tell you, for five years that I've stepped out, I've never been sick. I've never been. uh, It just drives me every day. It gets me out of bed. I'm excited about it and passionate and and have a purpose. Uh, I think it's just so important rather than just doing a job. So many people are just stuck in the job. You know. Police force, we call it the golden handcuffs. We're sort of getting a good wage so we don't leave because, um, and, and there's a lot of people, I guess, stuck in a job that they don't really enjoy and they're not passionate about, but it, it, it pays the bills. So it kind of, kind of uh, almost makes us scared to, to leave it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I would say that majority of people would probably be hearing this and finding themselves doing something that they may not necessarily be very passionate about but it pays the bills or but I have to for right now or you know one of those kind of options Um, but living with passion and doing something that you're very passionate about really changes your life completely it takes you out of that box of hourly and I have to to um, I want to and then this becomes your life yeah and yeah, um, yeah. yeah so it, which is a, a totally different way to live yeah and i'm certainly not saying that all police need to leave the police force well, some, most, a lot of them still love the job and they're, and they're doing a fantastic job and we need the police force so we 100 need them and they're doing a fantastic job so i'm not i'm not trying to say that anyone needs to leave that and do what i'm doing but um <laughs> i just got to the stage where i um <laughs> needed well, to make I guess, that change. i mean and, and in that in that note i suppose um yeah, you can be a, a police officer and be very passionate about it obviously people start off um whatever they're doing and there's a certain amount of passion but you just got to know when that passion is probably drying up yeah and um, yeah. 
and maybe you're going through the motions, you know, and yeah. so then you're prepared to then make a change. And so I think that will probably be one of the biggest things as well uh, about your story that I find is that you you stayed with it. It's not like you were jumping around, changing, you know, ch- changing careers and vocations. I think, um, I, I think I'm still policing now, but just doing it in a different way. Still trying to keep people out of prison. Still trying to keep, um, you know, yeah, just doing it in a different way. Yeah, and that's that's very very encouraging. It's uh, encouraging to hear that we can live a life of of passion and can keep on pursuing the things that we feel in our heart that we're placed here to do on Earth. Absolutely, I agree. Probably one of the things that uh, I, I don't know why, but um, it's been on my thoughts lately, and um, I've been thinking about how short life is. It, it really is. Just recently. Um, in the middle of all of this COVID, um, celebrated a friend's birthday and he was turning 50. And I, 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 A, I didn't even know he was 50. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I didn't realize that. But, um, you know, it's just, I was thinking to myself, 50 and then, wow, before you blink, it'll be 60 and then 70. And I think yeah, I yeah. retire <laughs> at 65. I don't know anyone that actually is retiring at 65, but... <laughs> We're supposed to retire. And then um, before you know it, life just passes you by so quickly. And um, I remember you saying just recently, I heard you speaking and um, you were talking about um, when you die and you said that when you go to heaven, you really want to know that you did everything that you could. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that thought sort of sparked my daughter um, over a dinner party one night, she just asked people around the room, she said, what's your greatest fear? And I thought about it and uh, luckily I was the last one to answer, so I had a little bit of time to think about it, but I said, you know, my greatest fear would one one day to stand before God and God say, you know, what did you do with the talents that I gave you? And and not being able to have an answer. I think that would be a very, yeah, not a, not a, not a good thing, you know. I want yeah. to be able to stand before God one day and say, well, yeah, I, I gave it a good old crack and, um, you know, try the best with the, the talents and the, uh, the the little ability that you gave me, but I, 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 I did the best with it, you know. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Look, on that note, just want to thank you for your time. And uh, it's been a great chat. I think it's been really helpful thinking about passion and talking to somebody who's so passionate about what you're doing and that you have the courage to take some risks in the middle of that story. Yeah, it's been fantastic. 